If you'd turn in your copy of the scriptures to Habakkuk chapter 1. Sometimes a little difficult to find it quickly. You might put a bookmarker in there for the next month or so. How often do we know precisely what the boss should do about the lazy guy at work that is always talking about him behind his back? Or perhaps what dad should do about my big brother who is always picking on me and finishing off the last five cookies when no one is looking? Or how about the mayor, how he should handle the rising rate of gang violence and crime in our city? We've called and written letters to those in authority many times, but nothing seems to happen. Till one day, the boss or dad or the mayor comes over and says to you, I hear you. In fact, you don't know the half of it. This situation is far worse than you know, and this is what I'm going to do. He then lays out a plan that is, in your mind, so over the top, using tools, consequences, wicked characters you had never imagined that you say, well, wait a minute. Your solution is, it's really worse than the problem. In this imaginary case, that may be true. But in late 600 B.C., in the country of Israel, the nation was in a perverted mess. They were full of idolatry and rebellion against God. And in that land, there lived a prophet named Habakkuk. And he was sick and tired. He was heartbroken over the way his people had broken God's covenant. In the mind of this prophet, there seemed to hang questions like, is God really sovereign over all of this? If, if so, why, why is everything so dreadfully wrong? And Why doesn't he change it? These questions still play strong in the year 2023, don't they? The last few times we have opened up a new book of Scripture for preaching, I have been gripped with the sense that this was the most important message God would have given us for our time. Habakkuk is no exception. As it carries us into a uniquely deep, and sober reality that reveals the true faith it must be anchored in order to survive. Several months ago, one of my children had noticed that their attached garage on the south side of the home was sinking and it was moving away from their house. This may have been due at least in part to the extremely dry conditions over a long period of time. If the garage continued to sink, it would eventually pull away from the house and the entire structure of the home would suffer severe damage. The solution, as you might imagine, was very, very expensive. And it involved lots of men, machines, tools, steel, and concrete. And the remedy was to dig four large pits along the sinking side of the garage. And then drive large steel beams down through the bottom of the pits, down through the earth, until finally they rested on solid bedrock where they would stay. Then they literally lifted the garage up about two inches, fastened it to those steel beams to hold it in place. Some of us have faith that is like a footing or excuse me, some of us have faith that rests pretty comfortably on the surface of the soil in times of comfort. Many of us have faith that is like a footing that has been placed deeper into the subsoil and has a lot of concrete with it, but it's not quite on solid bedrock. It looks pretty good at the beginning and has stood a test of time. But when deep trials really begin to assail or there is a spiritual or an emotional drought or when everything around us seems bewildering and hardly in the control of God, that faith begins to sink and come apart. 
What honors Christ and what we truly must desire, each of us, is a foundation of faith. A foundation of faith whose steel beams are driven deeply down past circumstances, past the circumstances and relationships of our life, past the world that is around us and all that we see, and rest on bedrock, on that true, unchangeable, immovable bedrock. You see, Habakkuk's faith does not rest on that bedrock as he begins to pray in chapter 1. He begins in a time of great turmoil of faith. But by the end of this book, you will see the beams of his life. You will see that they have finally come to rest upon solid rock. It gives him a most amazing faith and a powerful testimony to the glory of God. I hope and pray that Habakkuk will cause you and me to look deeper at the foundation of our faith than we have ever looked before. God presents his prophet Habakkuk with great transparency. Don't be afraid to honestly and humbly look at your own faith. Ask the questions that Habakkuk is asking. And listen to the answers that God gives. Come to this book with full surrender to God, asking Him to build your faith solidly upon Himself and Him alone. You see, all else will fail. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 28 declares, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book that rarely receives attention. And yet this morning and for the next several weeks it will be our focus. And Father, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed. And it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, we pray that your word would speak to us. Things that we are not familiar with, that we are uncomfortable with, please press us to you, Father. Please keep us, prevent us from making excuses and from being distracted or from looking at this as ancient irrelevance. Lord, speak to us clearly. May your word be that sharp, two-edged sword that pierces even to the dividing of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and judges the intents of the heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All that we know about this man Habakkuk is found within three chapters of this brief book bearing his name. Even between its covers there is very little biographical information. He is not mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. However, he is quoted by Paul and the writer of Hebrews regarding perhaps the most significant truth in all of Scripture. And we will get to that in a few weeks. But Paul also uses a quote from Habakkuk in the book of Acts that we're going to look at this morning. You see, Habakkuk lived and prophesied at a time of great national and global turbulence. Judah was in a moral freefall. So bad was this freefall that while Habakkuk was prophesying, God appears to have placed Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zephaniah on the same scene. Even with the five-man team of those heavyweight prophets in the region, the people would not turn from their rebellion. Although the book of Habakkuk is considered one of the minor prophets, and that's not because of its importance, but because of its length, 
It is very unique from the rest. As we read this, you will realize something. This prophet does not utter a single word. He does not speak a single word to the people of the land. The book is his prayer journal to God with God's response recorded as well. God's words are in a plural form so that while Habakkuk receives from God, what he receives from God is not for him alone, but it must be shared with the people of Judah as well. We begin with the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. The prophet's heavy burden. Now, I ask you a question. What would you call a message of doom that described destruction of literally everything you had ever known by some of the most wicked people you had ever heard of? If you were the one having to give that message, what would it be to you? It would be a heavy, heavy burden. A heavy burden of your soul and a heavy burden for your tongue to speak. Now, some of your translations read the oracle or the prophecy or the utterance of Habakkuk, which are all acceptable meanings. But the word burden seems most appropriate. As the Lord gives us deeper understanding of what Habakkuk is pleading and what God is doing, you will see that this may be the heaviest burden of a message a man has ever had to bear. One scholar declared, the prophet treats the problem of history in his book and he treats it in a fascinating way. He doesn't treat it from an academic standpoint. He doesn't treat it from a theoretic standpoint. He doesn't treat it from a philosophical standpoint. He treats it from the personal perplexity of his own life. He says in essence, God I can't figure out what's going on like it is if you are who you are. End quote. This heavy burden of a message begins with Habakkuk's desperate prayer to God. How long, O Lord? O Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. It is painfully clear from Habakkuk's opening cry that something has gone terribly wrong in Judah. It is very likely that Habakkuk actually grew up under the reign of the young king Josiah. One of the very few kings the Old Testament depicts as righteous. And here is why I say that. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Verses 1 through 7. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. That is a miracle. When you understand who his grandfather and his fathers were. Verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. Did you hear that, you eight-year-olds? And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. They broke down the altars of the, of the Baals in his presence. And the incense altars which were above them he cut down. And the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images he broke in pieces. And made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars. And cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh. Ephraim and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and all around with, the, with axes. When he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into powder, and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned 
to Jerusalem. Josiah's courageous reforms were an absolute reversal of the pagan idolatry his grandfather Manasseh and his father Ammon had created during their evil reigns as kings of Judah. And two years later, the greatest point of Josiah's life erupts on the scene. In other words, you haven't seen anything yet. It is described in 2 Chronicles 34 going on at verse 8. In the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. When they came to Hilkiah the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites who kept the doors had gathered from the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim, from all the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin, and which they had brought back to Jerusalem. Then they put it into the hands of the foreman, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen who worked in the house of the Lord to repair and restore the house. They gave it to the craftsmen and builders to buy hewn stone and timbers for beams and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. And the men did the work faithfully. Their overseers were Jehath and Obadiah the Levites, of the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshulam, of the sons of the Kohathites to supervise. Others of the Levites, all of whom were skillful with the instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and were overseers of all who did work in any kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes, officers, and gatekeepers. Now, when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. So Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing the king word, saying, All that was committed to your servants they are doing. And they have gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it to the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. And then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Aziah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. A time of great, great reform. But sadly, sadly that reform lasted only as long as the life of King Josiah. After his death in battle against Egypt's Pharaoh Necho at Megiddo in 609 B.C., Judah immediately began to revert back to her idolatrous ways. She continued to plummet until the final fall of the city of Jerusalem only 22 years later at the hands of Babylon. Habakkuk, he had most likely enjoyed Judah's glory days of reform and return to Yahweh and to Josiah and then sadly watched as it turned its back on God, falling into the darkest days before destruction. Habakkuk was a first-hand eyewitness, and it tore his heart out. He was the cry, his was the cry of the psalmist. Rivers of water run down from my eyes, because men do not keep your law. This cry, how long? tells us that Habakkuk has been pleading with God for some time. And we don't know how long, but, but now he is at a point of desperate frustration with how wicked the people had become. And yet God was doing nothing. The scriptures tell us that when we cry out to God, He hears and will answer. But they also make it quite clear that his timing and response will be according to his will and not ours. 
Centuries before Habakkuk, the people of Israel had demanded the prophet Samuel, give them a king. Samuel gave several warnings about what would happen to them if they got their wish. The final warning was, and you will cry out in the day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Isaiah had prophesied as well. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Why, O Lord? Why, O Lord, do you show me iniquity? And cause me to see trouble. For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention as it arises. What is your reason, O Lord God? The worst of the worst of evil is playing out all around me. Plundering, violence, strife, contention. And this is not caused by foreign enemies. It is your very own people destroying each other. Why? Is it okay to talk to God this way? My God, my God, why? That is the cry from the lips of the Son of God as He hung forsaken on the cross, covered with the guilt of our sin. A thousand years earlier, David had wrote, written in Psalm 22, My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Are the questions, how long, O Lord, or why, O God, acts of sin? Obviously not when Jesus himself cries with this same plea from the cross. Job. Job also uttered almost the exact same cry as Habakkuk. Behold, I cry out violence. I am not answered. Job chapter 19 verse 7. The book of Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 records the cries of the souls of those under the altar who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Habakkuk, Job, David, and the martyred saints were servants of God. But they were also simply mortal. They could not understand the working of a sovereign and omniscient omniscient God happening in the midst of such utter wicked unrighteousness. They did not utter these prayers in defiance. They cried out in desperation, perhaps in disillusionment because of love for their God. But as this book Habakkuk and the books of Job, Psalms, and Revelation revealed, men also cry out from a point of mortal limitation. God was at work, but in ways that they could not see or even imagine. And yet, the evidence before Habakkuk's eyes was in verse 4, the law is powerless, it is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Look at the result. The law was literally numbed, frozen, paralyzed. Laws without fear of the lawgiver give way to anarchy. The laws became powerless while the lawless gained power. Without a society governed by law, justice disappears. For without law, there was was no basis for justice. Justice remained parked in the garage, never to see the light of day. Brothers and sisters, if there is one verse in Habakkuk's prayer that screams to us even louder than the rest. Isn't it this one? 
the abolition of righteous law and justice has exploded. Not only globally in foreign lands like Russia, Iran, China, Holland, Sudan, Canada, India, and Mexico, but time after time in our own country, men attempting to thwart robberies or prevent others from being hurt are not only being killed in the process, but if they do survive, they are often the ones being charged with crimes while the perpetrators are set free. An off-duty fireman attempting to physically restrain a man carrying a gun who had harassed a shopkeeper is shot in the back and killed by the harasser's nearby girlfriend and no charges for the killer. A parking garage attendant attempting to stop a man from looting cars in his facility shot four times by the intruder, yet he was able to somehow wrestle the gun from the intruder and shot him in return. Police arrived and found both men lying on the sidewalk bleeding. The parking attendant awoke in the hospital shackled to his bed. As was informed, he was charged with attempted murder and illegal possession of a gun, the gun he had wrestled from the intruder. <coughs> Meanwhile, that intruder was already back on the street and armed once again. A state law recently passed that will grant courts custody of your child if you, the parent, prevent or inhibit that child from gender transitioning. The list of twisted, upside-down injustice goes on and on and on. Why? In Judah, it was because the wicked surrounded those who feared God. The few God-fearing men and women of the land were outnumbered and out-influenced by the wicked. Then it is the same reason in portions of our nation today. The wicked own the majority of media and fill a host of the institutions of education. They are many of the religious and political leaders of the day. Judgments coming out of the courts and legislatures were perverted in Habakkuk's day and are increasingly so today. Court decisions that today have legalized same-sex unions and falsely called them marriages. Allowing the killing of pre-born children and refusing to call it murder. Protecting lying to and mutilating children into rejection of God's created roles as men and women. And removal of any statements honoring the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the law of God from public forums. And on and on. When men forgot God and His Word in Israel, Habakkuk records that plundering, violence, strife, contention, powerless laws, disappearance of justice, and dominance of the wicked and perverted judgment proceeded. Do you see why Habakkuk is contemporary as this evening's CNN or Fox newscast? except that Habakkuk was a whole lot more honest. Our nation is certainly not Israel, nor is it God's chosen nation in place of Israel at this time in history. But when Israel broke covenant with God and behaved godlessly like the other nations around it, God promised to bring judgment upon it for blaspheming His name. When a nation like ours that had a world reputation, and I've heard this so many times, as a Christian nation, defies the word of God and blasphemes the name of Christ, it most certainly has come into judgment. How does God respond to such a cry from Habakkuk? The dreadfulness of the response it's interesting how this comes. You see, there is no setup to what God is about to say. There's no behold, comma, or thus says the Lord. No warm-up, no cushion. Yahweh hits it straight on. And He says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. God is in absolute full agreement with Habakkuk's complaint about the covenant people. In fact, Yahweh's response shows that although Habakkuk is heartbroken, 
He only sees a tiny fraction of the wickedness that Judah is engrossed in. How do I know that? What are the attributes of God? Let me tell you three of them. He is omniscient, He is omnipresent, and He is eternal. Omniscient means that He is all-knowing. Omnipresent means that He is existing fully everywhere. And eternal means He is unbound by time, existing past, present, and future, simultaneously everywhere, knowing all things. Consequently, God is not only aware by knowledge of each and every act of sin and perversion, by each and every act of every man, woman, and child. He is also very literally, He is very literally present as that sin is carried out every second and every day, 24-7. The truth is, the state of Judah's sin is far worse than Habakkuk could ever fathom. However, Yahweh utters no rebuke at Habakkuk for his cries of lament and impatience. In fact, now Habakkuk knows that God has heard, that he has seen, that he knows far more than Habakkuk could even imagine. And how God is going to respond in these next few verses to Judah's covenant rebellion would make Habakkuk's heart stop and tears flood his eyes, except that God says it will be beyond anything that Habakkuk would even believe. Paul uses the same staggering warning in his gospel speech to the rulers of the synagogue in the town of Antioch of Pisidia in the book of Acts. He declares to them the unexpected and mighty work God was doing by unleashing the gospel to save Jews and Gentiles alike by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yet, realizing some will reject this work of God, he warns in Acts 13, verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. What the prophets said did come upon believing Israel, just like it was about to come upon Judah in the day of Habakkuk. You see, within a few short years after Paul's prophetic warning, Rome stormed Jerusalem, and over a million Jews were suddenly slaughtered. A hundred mil, or excuse me, a hundred thousand were taken as slaves. And that so flooded the slave market that the price of a Jewish slave was less than the price of a horse. It was a time of great tragedy. God's response to Judah in Habakkuk's time would not only be terrifying in its effect, but it would demonstrate the mighty sovereignty of God. Now some of us do not like to hear this. Habakkuk did not want to hear it either, as we'll study next week. It can make us very uncomfortable. It's too much heaviness and doom. Too much fear. I don't have to tell you that I didn't write the book of Habakkuk. But God did. And this is what He says. Verse 6, For indeed I am raising up. You see, God is at work. God did this, you know. God's prophet Daniel declared, in Daniel chapter 2, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. And He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Paul reinforces Daniel centuries later in the New Testament writing, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Those are tough words to swallow. God not only did this, God does this now, you know. Do you wonder 
why certain nations on this earth have risen to ever-increasing power, technology, and wealth, while others have crumbled and realigned or disappeared. It was an economic failure, analysts explain, or it had an inherently weak politic, or its leadership was full of corruption. And reasons abound on the surface of demise, but beneath it all, the Lord raises up and the Lord tears down. You see, before Habakkuk had ever cried out, God's plan was already at work. He was in the process of raising up an upstart wild stallion of a people. And he did this through several surprising feats of military prowess. God's tool for the work. Who was God's tool? The Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, they were also known as Babylonians. Robertson points this out. He said, Who would believe that a virtually non-existent entity could conquer the old capital of Assyria in 614 B.C., Nineveh in 612, Haran in 610, and rout the Egyptian armies of Pharaoh Necho at Carchemish in 605 B.C.? They became the world rulers over Babylonia, Assyria, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt when 20 years previously they hardly were known to exist. God then lists to a shocked Habakkuk the features of this Chaldean multi-tool that will wreak havoc across the civilized world and will bring Judah and the city of Jerusalem to its knees. The terrifying features of the Chaldean multi-tool. And I have a multi-tool here in my hands. They were a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. First of all, they were insatiable and relentless. They were a ruthless people without mercy. A fearful and uncertain army, writes Robertson, advances slowly, cautiously, and by that very procedure provides opportunity for many to escape the miseries they might inflict. But this proud people, confident of victory, does not hesitate to expose, expose its flanks to the enemy. Not a portion of the world escapes its brutal tyranny. Many modern leaders such as Napoleon and Hitler have destroyed their armies by exposing a limited troop to too broad a territory. But this nation has gathered such strength that it has no fears. Almost a thousand years earlier, Moses declared to Israel, as it possessed the promised land, he said, So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities, which you did not build, houses full of all good things, which you did not fill, hewn out wells, which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Ironically, by the power of that same Yahweh who had given it all to Israel, by the raising up of God, the Babylonian army would soon take what they did not build away from Judah and make it their own. A very sobering quote in one commentary read, their place of comfort, enjoyment, pleasure, relaxation, security and refreshment shall be taken from them. They were in no way ready for such a trial. Are you? Verse 7 says, they are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. In other words, they are a law to themselves. These invaders are fearsome. What is right is whatever they call right. They are completely autonomous. There is no standard of decency or morality that dictates how they live or how they ruthlessly treat others. A man by the name of Leitch concluded, like Nietzsche's Ubermensch, 
G.B. Shaw's Superman, Goethe's Prometheus, and W.W. Henley's Invictus. This great memorial to self shall declare boldly its lack of indebtedness to anyone but itself. And they are fiercely equipped. Their horses are also swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead and their cavalry comes from afar and they fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. You see, Judah was perhaps fooling itself to think that great distance separating them from Babylon might prevent an attack. They must have surely believed Assyria that lay between them and the Chaldeans could handle this foe. And if not Assyria, then no doubt Egypt would protect its own interest in Israel from falling into the hands of Babylon. But the speed of the Chaldean horsemen was swifter than the desert leopards. The Chaldean army was upon them before they could breathe. And when they arrived, the aggression of their troops was like ravenous wolves, hungry all day, craving finally the blood of their prey. Their speed was like an eagle swooping down out of the sky for the kill. And they are bent on violence. They all come for violence. Their faces are like the east wind. They, captive, they gather captives like sand. Violence. Violence of God's people upon each other was part of Habakkuk's great complaint. Now, violence magnified would be returned by a vicious, unrestrained outsider's fist. Their armies moved like the wind across the desert sands. God had covenanted with Abraham that his descendants would be as the what of the sea? As the sand of the sea. Now the Babylonians would gather them up like that sand and drop them into the buckets of death and slavery. And they are arrogantly fearless. They scoff at kings. Princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earth and mounds and seize it. Who is going to stand in their way? Every previously dominant force has melted before their charging steeds. They have eaten up Assyria and Egypt like ravenous wolves. As an arrogant, undefeated, heavyweight champion, they laugh at any supposed opponent. The fortified cities that ordinarily served as a citadel of safety for retreating armies, they were no more than a house of cards for the stormtroopers of Babylon. They built siege mounds along the walls and invaded with ease. And they are pagan to the core. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. But the ESV, I think, reads perhaps more clearly. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is indicative of Robert's continued description of Babylon. He writes, Yet their energy dissipated almost as rapidly so that they were easily overcome by Cyrus of Persia in 539 B.C. Just in time to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah concerning Isaiah's return in 70 years. They were a vicious tool, but they were in the hands of God. After an inexplicable sudden catapult to power over nation after nation, Ultimately, Babylon would crown itself as a god. But after a 70-year span of dominion, it would be tossed onto the junk heap of failed nations. Just as God was raising up the Chaldeans at the time of Habakkuk, He would decimate them through His man Cyrus seven decades later. Remember what God wrote to the prophet Isaiah? The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. In conclusion, 
as Habakkuk witnesses to us. And we must agree. God's silence is in actions and actions are often mysterious to us. We may pray that God would have mercy on our city, our state, and our nation and bring revival. I believe that's perhaps what Habakkuk had pleaded. It may even sound like an echo of the godly cry of Habakkuk, but, but like him, we do not know the perfect will of God, nor how he is working or will work in the days and years that lie ahead. But we do know, we do know that God works all things for his glory and for the good of those who love him. Whatever occurred in the past and what will occur in the future is under his hand of sovereignty. Judgment will be carried out. Justice will prevail. Probably not today. Probably not tomorrow. Or or even next year. But it will. It will prevail. You see, all is in his hands. Remember... Remember that this is not a competitive universal spiritual wrestling contest between God who is sovereign and omnipotent versus Satan who is almost sovereign and really strong. No, there is no such thing as partially sovereign or almost omnipotent. God is in control no matter what we see from our little perch on earth today. We have a great advantage over Habakkuk. Because God has given us the rest of the Old Testament. We see what becomes of Israel and Judah. It is tragic. But they do return. Like a wounded and crippled old soldier limping home. But they return to Israel. But the New Testament, the New Testament gives us great hope. The Gospels present the one who is the only escape to all men who are condemned by hell. Condemned to hell by their inescapable sin. Our disastrous sin predicament is much more evil and violent than we can ever imagine. If you thought what happened to Jerusalem at the hands of the Chaldeans, which we'll understand later, and what happened to Jerusalem at the hands of of the Romans, that is symbolic of the battle of sin and wickedness and against a great and holy and mighty God. The violence, the heaviness, the wrath that will be poured out. We, we hardly glimpse that often when we talk about the gospel. Most people do not want to hear the message from Habakkuk. They especially do not like God's response back to him. We want to soften or neglect judgment. Most people want the gospel because it sounds good. It's a pleasant way of living. It gets them around a good group of people, may clean up their life, or may restore their marriage or family. Praise God, the gospel indeed may accomplish those things, but it may not. It may not do that. In fact, Jesus says, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not all, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five and one house will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus said, this is why I came. In order that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He said that he came to seek and to save the lost. He said that whoever hears his word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into condemnation, but has passed from death to life. Jesus came to save men and women like me and you from an eternal hell that is far worse than the likes of the Chaldean warriors about to destroy Judah. In hell, Jesus says, their worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones sums up four lessons that we learn from these first 11 verses of Habakkuk. He said that history is in God's control. Secondly, history follows a divine plan. 
Thirdly, history follows a divine timetable. And history is bound up with the divine kingdom. Let me close with this solid counsel concerning God's kingdom from Dr. Jones. Let us not therefore be stumbled when we see surprising things happening in the world. Rather, let us ask, what is the relevance, what is the relevance of this event to the kingdom of God? Or if strange things are happening to you personally, don't complain, but say, what is God teaching me through this? What is there in me that needs to be corrected? Where, can I, where have I gone wrong? Or why is God allowing these things? There is a meaning in them if only we can see it. And we need not become bewildered and doubt the love or the injustice of God. If God were unkind enough, if God were unkind enough to answer some of our prayers at once and in our way, we should be very impoverished Christians. Fortunately, God sometimes delays His answer in order to deal with selfishness or things in our lives that should not be there. He is concerned about us and intends to fit us for a fuller place in His kingdom. We should therefore judge every event in the light of God's great, eternal, and glorious purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have waded into a deep and dark place in the history of your people. And it's deep and dark as we read it, Lord. And yet, we need, we need to see the depth and the darkness of sin, of our rebellion, of our apathy, as it was in Judah. Lord, please help us to to glean, to gain from what your word says this morning. And may it soften our hearts. May it make them tender like Josiah's to the word of God. And Lord, may it be, be the first penetration of those beams, steel beams down through the soft soil headed for bedrock. We want to be yours, Lord. We, we desire that. Please draw us near. Make us men and women that will be strong lights for you, that will be strong and faithful in the face of injustice, in the face of great sin, in the face of temptation, Lord, in the face of pressures and persecutions. Lord, make us strong because we know you and we stand on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.